Hello and welcome to the Disrupting Balance podcast with Hanifa Barnes. It's me, I'm your host, a multicultural mama, wife, and leader. And here is where we amplify the stories of multicultural women who are unraveling from tradition to make the switch in work, well-being, and winning. I made the switch. Former professional actor turned lawyer turned education executive, and I'm not done yet. Join in on the conversation and learn how you can unravel from your stuff to make the switch, disrupt balance, and win. Every woman's journey is unique and masterful. Yet, in all of our different stories, we find similarities in the nuances that make us all relate. And that is the story of Shamir, a Boston-born, Caribbean-bred Black woman who found strength and identity in the summer spent with her grandmother, cousins, and family in the Turks and Caicos Islands. She is an educator, carnival connoisseur, and breast cancer survivor. Shamir's steady and deliberate demeanor tells a larger story of a woman who knows who she is and knows what she wants, especially in her relationship. Shamir discusses how she has found that person who she has finally granted full access to her story and her story to be. So hello and welcome everybody back to the Disrupting Balance podcast. So glad you're joining us today. And in the chair, we have none other than Shamir here with us today. Hey, Shamir. Hey. How you doing? Good. How are you? <laughs> Good. For those who don't know, Shamir and I go way, way, way back, but we'll save those stories for another podcast episode because we're here to learn all about Shamir. So let's jump right in, Shamir. Tell me, what is your story? Oh, dear. Um, I feel like that can go so many places, but... You know, I'm just a an island girl, American born with a whole bunch of, you know, just different Caribbean blood in my system. So, I mean, that is who I know. I identify as a Caribbean American. Honestly, if I, back in the day, if I, I really wanted to just kind of just be Caribbean, I'm like, why do I need to be American anyway? Um, because, you know, I felt like the country had so much going on and I, I connected more so with um, my island roots than I did with, you know, being a, a kid um, mm. from from Boston because I was there um, so much. So my mother is from the Turks and Caicos Islands, or as they say, the Turks and Caicos Islands. Mm-hmm. And my father is from a small um, island called uh, Tortola in the British Virgin Islands. I've never been there though. So that's why I never, I, I never really felt comfortable claiming it because I've never gone. I couldn't really tell you anything about it aside from, you know, the little bit of research that I've done on my own and from what my family tells me. You, when we spoke, you talked about kind of this unique structure with your family. You mentioned being in Boston, living in Boston, even going to school in Boston when we talk, but not really identifying with this whole American culture. So tell me about that setup. What would happen every summer for you and why is it you connect so much to that side of your identity? Mm-hmm. So uh, months after I was born, I want to say maybe six months or so, my mother, as they, she sent me to Turks to be with um, 
my family. So my grandmothers, my grandmother, um, my aunts, my uncles. So my mother has a, a big family. She has um, seven siblings by my grandmother and my grandfather. And then he has uh, three outside children as well. Um, but you wouldn't be able to tell that because they get along, you know, so well. Um, and so uh, it's common for um, for people to live in America and then send their, their children uh, to be with their family so that they could stay in the States and make the money, right? Because growing up, and I think this story is still true to a lot of foreigners, is that, you know, this is the land of the free. It's the land where you know, there's a lot of opportunity and, 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 and whatnot. So she was here kind of making the bucks. And over time, um, when she real, she has this joke that, um, she knew it was time for me to come back because every time that she would visit and I wouldn't recognize her, um, like, Oh, Oh no, no, no. You're coming back with me because I would be like, Oh, she'd be like, come to mommy. I'm like, you're not you're not mommy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so, you know, I knew my grandmother, I knew my, my aunts. And so if I didn't know your, your face wasn't familiar to me, so it it wasn't easy for me to go to you. So, um, I went back to Boston to do my schooling, uh, probably when it was time to do kindergarten. And from then every winter break, every, um, back in the day in Boston, we used to have February break, uh, every summer, I was in Turks and Caicos. Um, I didn't know much about the Boston area to this day. I kind of still feel bad because someone will say a street and I'm like, where is that again? Mm-hmm. Um, and my school was on the same block that I lived in. So I didn't really go that far uh, for elementary school. And then middle school was just another couple of blocks. So again, I didn't have to go that far. I didn't you know, know much. And probably high school was probably the only time that I really explored and I did that on purpose. I was like, I want to go to a school where I have to get on like the train to go. Um, so I lived in Dorchester and I went to school in Brighton, which is like, it was probably like a 45 minutes to an hour commute. Uh, wow. So one train and then a trolley and then probably like a 10 minute walk um, to the school. And so that was intentional. Like that was my way of <laughs> venturing out um, and exploring my like, teen, teen life. Yeah. So what was it like with friendships then? Because, you know, you talk about not really getting out until high school. Was it easy for you to make friends or did you always feel different because of your background? I will say that it was easy to spot the other Caribbean kids. I joined Girl Scouts when I was nine. And I think doing that is what gave me certain exposures. Um, That's where I met my childhood best friend, still best friend to this day. Her mother was our troop leader. And that is really what what connected me to other people. Like I didn't hang out with the students in my class, except for like the girl who lived on the same block as me. Other than that, that was it. Middle um, Middle school was weird because I had people who... Like they were friends, but they weren't really friends. And it was still that same girl that was on the block with me. Um, And there was also like a lot of, I remember being like insecure and being that like that shy girl. And the thing was that they would always make make fun of my house on the outside, 
But I'm like, y'all don't know what it's like on the inside though. Like you don't know my mother. Like mm. it might look a little raggedy on the outside, but once you go inside, it's dope. Um, <laughs> so mm-hmm. there was, you know, there was that. So I really kept to myself, honestly, that that hasn't changed. It hasn't changed too much. I think I'm definitely more social than I was. I call myself selectively social. But uh, <laughs> like I like it, but at that point I'm like, okay, I really love being in the house. Um, so it was I don't think it was hard. It was just I needed people needed to understand, and they were young, right? Like people just needed to understand that you were who you were and stop trying to make me to be someone that I'm not, because I was quiet. Like if I don't want to talk, I'm not gonna talk. If I don't have if we're not sharing good vibrations and good energy that we don't really have that much in common, then I don't need to invest that in you. And and that was something that I kind of learned earlier. Like you still go through those childhood pains where you're like trying to, in your own way, trying to fit in. Um, but not, but like Girl Scouts was probably like my, my, um, my escape for a lot of that. So it wasn't hard. It was just different. Like I let go when I got to Turks, right? Like I was able to, in my mind, kind of be my full self when I'm on that island because this is like, this is what I know. This is what I'm used to. Um, these are the foods that I like to eat and no one can be like, oh, well, what are you eating? Or um, what's that? Or I don't, you know, it was it was just, I didn't have to explain anything to anybody. Yeah, I find that duality is common in multicultural uh, people and people in general who kind of exist in these two uh, ethnic worlds, whatever it is, whether it's a racial component or cultural component, Mm -hmm. like you being able to be free when you get home, I call it that because that's what we call it, home. Mm -hmm. You being able to be free is that obvious kind of, it highlights that duality. And then when you come here, it's like you're kind of, doing what you're supposed to do, putting on the show and kind of getting things done. In thinking about that, then what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? And how did that shift for you? And how did you manage that in in relation to your family? I used to want to be a lot of things. Um, my my mother and my father, like their highest um, degrees were, you know, like they got a diploma, right? Um, and I don't know that any other people honestly went to college. So I kind of felt like I needed to go. Um, but I was also kind of, I wanted to do the fun stuff, but I also kind of felt like I needed to be responsible and, and pick um and pick a career that would bring in the bring in the money, right? And that would be that would have security. I remember when I was little, I used to want to be a teacher. And then I remember also wanting to be I thought about being a lawyer when I was like, no, I don't really like talking to people. I've always been interested in law and government. And then around excuse me, around high school time, um, CSI was big. CSI had like just come out. And I was like, oh, this is dope. Um, And so (laughs) I thought about forensic science. And then I thought about, I've always had like this huge thing with um, fashion of some sort, whether it was like just jewelry making or designing clothes. But then I felt like I was lacking because I didn't know really how to draw. Like I could 
draw clothes and I could put my ideas on paper, but for it to be official, you know, and accepted by schools and colleges as a portfolio, I didn't know that I had that. Um, But anyway, so I ended up applying to a college for who actually had forensic science and fashion design at the same time. Wow. Like, oh, I can, maybe I can do this. Right. And that's just me not knowing, um, not doing much of the research, also not having parents who've been through the process. So they didn't really know what, um, what the prerequisites were. They didn't really know how the whole college thing was. I kind of just guided myself and there was, there was a guidance council, but I honestly don't remember them being that um, involved in my process. It was just like, okay, these are the, these are the schools. I knew I wanted to get out of Boston. I got into the school, but then they send the letter and they're like, oh, we just, we, we dissolved our fashion design program. And I was like, oh, that sucks, right? But I was like, well, I didn't really apply to that many other schools. So I'm just going to have to go here and deal with it. And so when I went and then I realized how much science was involved and how much math was involved, and I do not like math mm-hmm. or math doesn't like me, whatever it is. Um, I, <laughs> I was like, oh no, I'm not doing it. So I immediately, like I changed my major. I don't know if it was um, sophomore year. At whatever point I changed it, it it messed me up because that that then meant that I had to make up certain courses, and I also like dropped classes uh, freshman year because I was too busy, you know, just living the freshman life. Like, oh, it's not gonna matter. I can you know make this up or I can take this course, but later on down the road, that impacts me. Again, not having anyone around to guide me through the pros and cons of dropping a class, guiding me through why GPAs are so important, all of that information I felt like would have been vital um, mm-hmm. before I even stepped on on campus. During that time in college, I had, for some reason, like I knew that, I knew that I was a shy person or a very quiet person, but I knew that I had to try out for the dance team because dancing was a passion. Performing arts overall, performing visual arts, all types of arts, that's mm-hmm. my I was like, you know what? Despite how nervous I might be, this is something that I have to do. Um, so I ended up joining. I got on. Ironically enough, I was like, I ended up being like one of the first, the youngest captains of the dance team because one of the, the dance team captains, I think she left or something happened. And then I ended up being uh, like the first freshman captain or something. Um, and so my advisor for dance was an admissions officer. And so I would go with him to, um, college fairs as a student representative. And I'm looking at his job. I'm like, wow, this is kind of cool. I get to, I get to travel. I get to meet people. Um, I get to promote this institution that, I enjoy. So I felt like there were a lot of perks. So in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, this is something that I could see myself doing. But then I also needed to know like, what, what are the requirements for a position like this? So I ended up um, switching majors from criminal, from forensic science to criminal investigation, which is basically forensic science without all the sciences. Um, And I felt more comfortable there because it really got down to all the things that I actually wanted to know, right? And everything that I that I wanted to do. Um, so it was, it worked out. 
And then I, I just had to figure out, well, what is it that you want to do with this degree? And I was like, well, I don't really want to be a cop, but I would like to do something in the field that's not as risky. So I decided that, or I started doing some research in different areas and different states to figure out what would be possible. And so like Jersey and I believe Philly were two states at the time that were close enough that allowed um, people to be in the field in certain positions without needing to go through um, the academy and not without having to be a, a police officer. So I was like, okay, this could work. And so that's how I ended up, that's how I ended up in New Jersey at the time. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so you ended up in New Jersey and also ended up working in admissions, which is interesting. And so my question then is, in having that college, the dance advisor kind of model that job experience, do you think if you had access to people who modeled some of those things you were particularly interested in, you would have taken a different path? Um, yeah, I think I tend to be a very, I mean, yes, if you have people in front of you, then they're going to, you're going to know and you can gather, you can sit with them and, 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 and ask them certain things. Or sometimes you may not even have to ask, you just know what they're going through because they might just automatically share things um, with you. So um, even now, like when I see, or when I hear about, um, my friends talk about their roles and their jobs, I'm like, oh, you know, that's, that's good to know. Um, and it clears up all of the, the, the question bubbles that I may have had about, about that particular thing. I think it's always best if you learn something early on so that you know what to do or what not to do. It's kind of like learning from other people's mistakes. Well, you just did that and failed. So I'm not going to do, I'm not going to go that route. I'll do do, um, something, I'll do something different. It's a good look to have uh, people who have, have the experience, uh, especially if it's, if they're involved in something that you think you might do. I remember at the time Northeastern was doing a program it was like a five-year program, but at the end of the five-year program, you would have your um, teaching certification um, as opposed to having to go to grad school for an additional um, two years after after undergrad. And if I knew what I knew now, I would have done that, and I would have been right. with I would have been in the state of Massachusetts. My tuition probably Northeastern was a little pricey, but I still would have been in state, and I wouldn't have to uh, I wouldn't have had to pay you know, that out-of-state tuition and all of that, I would have been closer to home. I wouldn't have had to live on campus. So there were a lot of, there are a lot of like, I wish moments. So let's talk about that breast cancer journey and how that shifted some of your perspective on your life and your thoughts on life. So the journey, if we want to start from the beginning, was started when I was 17. And I just noticed that there was a lump in my breast. And after years of just going to different doctors and getting it tested and everybody kind of having a consensus that it was fibroadenoma and it was nothing to be worried about and that it was something that was um, normal in a number of women, especially Black women, that I didn't have anything to be concerned about. So I let that I let that go. And so uh, from 17 all the way through, what, 36 I, you know, just had that lump in my boob and didn't really think anything of it. Um, but over time, 
I do like self exams regularly if I'm laying down watching TV and I'm like, oh, let me just take this opportunity to see what's going on. Um, but over time it felt, I felt as though the lump was, I was like, is it getting bigger? Um, it feels different. If I'm going downstairs, it feels more uncomfortable and more noticeable. And like, I, I can legit feel it in, inside my breast. I moved to New York in 2019. And in that process of trying to find, um, new doctors in the area. So I didn't have to like go back and forth to New Jersey for all of these, um, treatments. Um, I decided that I would tell the then uh, my new GYN at the time. I was like, you know what? I've I've had this fibroadenoma. Everybody agrees that it's fibroadenoma, and I've got it tested and all that. I was like, but it feels different. And so she gave me a referral, and I went to um, get a diagnostic mammogram. Now, normally when I do the mammos. I just I take it. They look at the they look at the um, slides and then they say, oh, you know, everything's everything looks good. You're good to go. But this time it was like, yeah. So just give us a few minutes and we're gonna go and talk to the doctor. I'm like, mm, that's never <laughs> that's never happened mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the doctor looks at the film and he says that he wants me to take some additional tests. So I believe he wanted me to get. Um, an ultrasound, and also get a biopsy. Now, I didn't come in that day prepared for all of that. I scheduled, rather, um, appointments for those two things and had to go back, did the biopsy, which was so uncomfortable, and I did um, the ultrasound. And so at the end of it all, I remember... Um, getting a call from the doctor who did the biopsy. And she's telling me that um, there was some abnormal um, areas on the film and that it is DCIS, which is ductal carcinoma in situ. And so she's just proceeding to tell me Um, about it, but she's not using the word cancer. So I'm confused. I'm like, I don't know whether or not I should be concerned or whether or not this is just something, you know, regular schmegular. So I'm like, and I asked her, I was like, so is it car cancer or is it not? She's like, unfortunately it is. I'm like, okay. Mm. So I'm like, okay. So I'm listening and then I bust out my, my pencil and my pen and start taking down uh, information. Wow. So Immediately, like the first person I call is my, well, I'm going to call him my heartbeat, is my partner. And I tell him what the results are. And so, you know, he's asking me how I am. I'm like, I'm I'm fine, you know, for now. Like, I'm, you know, it's, she tells me that it's stage zero. So in my head, I'm like, okay, stage zero is great because there's what, four, about four stages um, of cancer. And I'm like, okay, so zero is good, right? Um and they explain it as just being a cancer that's inside the milk ducts um, and that it hasn't like, the, the good part was that it hadn't spread to like any other part of my breast. Um, so that was that. And then so after that, it was just this, all of this, it was just like a waiting game, right? Like I had to wait to find the ideal doctor. I went to, I want to say, three doctors to get different opinions. Um, and I do appreciate, um, having people in my corner, having him, 
um, there because honestly, if it was something that I did by myself, I would have just went to the first doctor because I just wanted to be mm. right. After leaving that first doctor, while I had reservations, it was just like, okay, yeah, she's ready to get me on the table next week. Let's go. Um, <laughs> but that wasn't the, the proper way to do things. Like, um, so, and then I ended up um, at Mass General where um, <laughs> I call her the guru, where my mother kind of pushed uh, for me to go because I, I I was kind of being stubborn. I was like, why would I do this? I live in New York. Why would I go to Massachusetts to do the surgery? And, you know, that's inconvenient. And it's this and it's that. I was really not for it. And, but I, I for my mother, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go because I know she's already freaking out because her only child has been diagnosed with cancer. So let me oblige and and do this thing for her. So I went and, and funny enough, this lady was amazing. And I, as soon as I sat in the chair, as soon as I shook her hand, I was like, oh, this is the place. Um, because her, her bedside manner matched mm-hmm. my needs. Mm-hmm. The other people did not. The other two yeah. doctors, they, they weren't there. She took the time to truly explain every little thing, explaining what, you know, the, the milk ducks look like, explaining like, you know, they're about the size of a spaghetti, right? So just imagine the kid, you know, like all those little things I get, I don't, I don't know if it's the educator in me that appreciated the, that she took the time out to do that. Yeah. Um, and sat there and act and answered every question that um, my partner and I had, didn't rush us, didn't cut us off, just sat there and just talked. She was confident that um, she could spare my nipple. It wasn't like a, it, there wasn't a question about it. There wasn't a question about um, their process. They had done, her and her team had done about 3,000 of the surgeries that I needed of the mastectomies. Um, and the, the perk of the mass general team was that they they conducted the the surgery and the reconstruction the same day so they would remove the cancer and put in the implant the same day yeah. other places um you have to wait a couple of months um before you can get your reconstructive surgery that was probably i think that was august when i visited her my my um surgery was the next month at the like towards the end of September and throughout it all i think it was just inconvenient it was inconvenient it was the fear of like the unknown not knowing what type of treatment i would need not knowing like the final results because they would say that even though you know we've diagnosed you at stage 0 it could be a lot different once we go inside so i was like well ah, you know i don't what if I have stage three and four once you go inside, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there was all this testing. There was genetic testing. There was, you know, all these fertility things that I wanted to do or that that needed to happen because I, I still wanted to um, have children. And I didn't know whether or not, you know, being on treatments or what have you would impact all of that. So it was just like, I don't know anything. Um, and that was the most scary part. Um, mm-hmm. Throughout it all, it's like, yeah, I, I'm... I'm good. Like I'm not freaking out. I'm not crying every day. I'm not depressed. I just want to get it over with so that I can know what I need to do to move on with my life, you know, and how I move on with my life. So, yeah. Wow. So let's talk about your partner in this, um, because you have a real interesting perspective on your relationship history and how you define that. (laughs) And in finding your partner, current partner, 
you describe him in a very particular way as being your heartbeat. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how first you describe your past relationships and why you describe them that way. And then talk about what makes your partner now different. Okay. So all, so I would say, oh, I start off. So he is my first official relationship or, or exclusive relationship, my first boyfriend. So no one else can say, oh yeah, she married my ex-girlfriend. Nope. No. Mm. Um, I, <laughs> I have I, I coined myself as being the situationship queen um, because it's not that I've never had um, relationships in the past. They've just been of a certain kind. Um, so the individuals that I've been involved with, with like, you know, we have sure there's intimacy and there's connection, but there wasn't exclusivity. Um, mm -hmm. and that's from, that's from college on, uh, college. I, and, and the, the weird part about it is that they last a long time. Like, you know, I'm, I'm all about longevity. Like I don't really like, you know, hopping from person to person to person. Um, the longest situationship I've had was about seven and a half years. Um, and that was from, from, uh, freshman year in college all the way through, like 2007, right? That's a long time um, to be with, quote unquote, air quotes, to be with someone, but not be with them at the same time. But being there, like, it was just really weird. Um, mm -hmm. Being involved with, with someone, knowing that they are dating other people and at the same time, making sure that they understand that you too are able to do what you want. And it's not, a lot of people would frown upon that you know, when you, when you think about, um, women and, and whatnot and having double standards, but at the same time, it's like, no, I'm, I'm free to do what I want. Granted, I may not act on that. Um, but should a situation arise where I find myself, um, interested in someone and end up going out on a date with them, like that's okay because I'm not exclusive with anyone. And so it would get weird when, you know, you have, or when I had a, a, a I'll call him a, a boo, who, who did feel away, right? Where mm -hmm. it would only be okay if, because I would, I know that they're doing their thing, but I couldn't do my thing. And then it getting ugly um, because of their jealousies and insecurities. Mm -hmm. So the, the situationship journey is not for is not for everyone. And I think also men kind of, uh, a lot of men, I won't say all of them, get leery about women who agree to be in those types of relationships because honestly, at some point, the woman or just uh, any one of the partner, it could be male or female, end up you know, switching gears or wanting to switch gears and wanting to be exclusive. And then, but the other person is like, no, this is what we agree to, and I don't really want to, um, change our dynamic, but I mean, there are perks in all of them. I think, um, one of the, <laughs> the, the beauties is that, you know, you don't have to, I don't really have to do that much talking if I no longer want to be involved in it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just like, okay, we kind of just go our separate ways. I'm not saying that I have, I've never had a ugly 
quote unquote breakup, but um, they, I don't think they're as involved as, as some can be. Um, once you kind of remind people of <laughs> what it is and what they signed up for there, you, you can't really be, you can't really be mad at me if I'm just doing what is, is acceptable in this, in this predicament. So lots of learning lessons throughout them all. Mm-hmm. Wow. And what did your mom say about all those? <laughs> I know you <laughs> described it a certain way. What did she have to say? <laughs> my mother didn't understand. Like my mother, you know, she comes from a very traditional kind of thing. And it was hard for me to to say, she couldn't understand like how I was going out with people and how I was being intimate with them, but yet they weren't my boyfriend. And so she'll, she'll call him. And I would always correct her. She's like, yeah, she married his boyfriend. He's not my boyfriend. Or, or she, especially the ones that ran long that that went for years and she she didn't get it um and it wasn't until recently that I had to break certain things <laughs> down for her like I don't know if it's a generational uh gap or whatever but I'm like no this is this is how things are um and when I talk about my heartbeat I'm like he is the first boyfriend that I've ever had and she for a moment she thought that I had commitment issues um, but I didn't. I was like, no, I'm just very picky about about who I uh, allow to have full access of me. And even though I was in those situationships, they like like I limited the amount of shamir that you got. Like I knew that there was more, and I knew that there were certain things that I would reserve for the person that ended up being my exclusive partner. And while they might think that they're getting great things, I'm like, no, there's, there's more there. And so I think he has, <laughs> he knows what that is. And so he is the, the first person that gets all of, all of that. And it's not, not even in a, in a sexual way, like the, the mental, the emotional, all of, all of that comes with being with me, he gets, and he's the first person that's got it. So when you realize that was happening, if you realize it, because sometimes it just happens. But when you started to, whatever you started to notice about the difference in this relationship, were you on guard or were you like thinking, okay, I'm going to define it as this? Or how did it all kind of come together? Well, at first I was in denial. Um, or at first I was kind of like wondering, like, dang, do I really like him like that? No, he's just a friend. I, I, and honestly, I didn't know he jokes because I didn't know whether or not he was interested um, or if he was just being friendly because I'm also the type of person who I'm not going to jump to the conclusion. Just if somebody, if a guy says hi to me or if they engage in conversation, I'm not going to just assume that you're interested in me in a romantic way. Um, So, you know, I've seen other people go through that, just kind of like how we talk about just witnessing other people go through their stuff. Um, and it's like, yeah, no, that's not, he just wanted to be friends or he was just interested. You had a lot in common, um, but, you know, they're not interested in, in going beyond friendship. So I wasn't sure um, with him, but we um, connected and, and we aligned um, in very solid ways. So I think the one thing that I kind of was hesitant on or fearful of what were the feelings that were starting to evolve. And I was like, oh crap. And mm. at this, because at the same, again, because we're both, he was in, he was in situationships 
you know, or, or had connections. And I knew that he was, you know, he had other people around, but he wasn't in anything exclusive. I had just come out of, or I was actually in a situation when we started um, having conversations, but I knew that that was like fizzling out. Um, so it was just like, what do I do? Now I'm building up emotions for this person, but then I also don't know where things are leading or, or what things could be with him and the other people that are in his life. Um, so that was a cause, it, not necessarily a concern, but it was just something that was in the back of my mind. And it's like, okay, well, if he ends up, you know, choosing someone else or, or going a, a different path, you're just gonna have to deal with it. And I think I've had, there's some trauma there because I've had situations in the past where it was like, okay, her, her. And I always end up not being the one that's chosen. So it's like, oh, you know, there's, there's that um, mm-hmm. uh, kind of associated with that. But, you know, my confidence level was like way different than it was, you know, and yeah. 11 years ago. So yeah, it was just like, okay, we're just going to just let the, 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 let the balls fall where they may and, and take it one step at a time. Hmm. Yeah. Sometimes you have no choice, but to do that. Mm-hmm. Like whatever's out of my control is out of my control. I'm not stressed. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So now I guess m- my question then is, just thinking big picture, how does all of this kind of contribute to Shamir, the woman, the educator, and the entrepreneur, something we haven't even touched on yet? How do all these experience, experiences shape that for you? Um, definitely, I'm in a place... And I, or I've been in a place rather, I, I don't know. I think everybody might have like that moment where they know that they just ought to, they, they changed. Um, and new year's going into 2010 was the time for me. So I knew like that it was at that moment that I switched from the old Shamir to the new Shamir. And so from 2010 on, or, you know, like I've been just working on that person and not even on purpose, like it's just naturally happening. Um, so just becoming more unapologetic about who I am and my past experiences, um, learning to not even learning, just having to stand up for myself in, in certain situations, not tolerating, uh, certain types of disrespect or things that like, if I sat and I, if I went back to previous happenings in my life, five, 10, 15 years ago as the person that I am now, like a lot of that thing, a lot of those things would not have happened or would not Mm. have gone down the way that they went down. I might might have been in jail, Um, Mm. but um, really just really different, more confident, more um, just not one to, like, I'm not pleasing anybody. Like I'm not living to please anybody else. I'm not living to make you more comfortable with something that I choose to do for myself, right? Realizing uh, what I want versus what I don't want. Um, And knowing that I'm going to do what I'm going to do regardless, regardless of how anyone else uh, feels. And I think that's one thing that has stayed consistent. Like if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. It may not happen tomorrow, but I'm going to do it. Um, And so that, I don't know if it's stubbornness. My mother calls me stubborn, but um, I think it's just... 
yeah, like she knows that like I'm headstrong. So if I if I've committed to something and I don't commit to anything easily, like if I decide to do something, you better believe like I've put thought into it. I've made my list of pros and cons. Um, and I'm choosing, I'm choosing according to what I think is going to be best for me. So you probably, I can talk to you about it, but I'm not going to, I'm probably not going to ask you for advice. I'm not going to ask, uh, the opinion of many people. Uh, the only person I probably might ask is my heartbeat. Right. And, and like, that's it. Like that's, that's who I trust. That's who I know that we're aligned. We're on the same page about majority of things. And he's going to see it just like me, uh, positive, negatives, and we're going to make, we're going to make a wise decision. Um, so just making wise and right decisions is really the wave that I've been on, honestly. And so what is the one thing in 2021 then that you want to make sure you hold space for? Motherhood. Oh, yay. That's an exclusive. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, that's great. So, so why motherhood? Oh, it ha- well, it has to happen. Um, no, that's always been something that I've wanted. Um, I think, I don't even say I think, like, I just really look forward to um, that opportunity. Additionally, because of the, the breast cancer, I am like on, because of the breast cancer and my age, I'm like on a... Mm-hmm. Like most women my age are on a ticking top, but I I really am on a a, a, a clock um, because um, the treat like I didn't have to take chemo, I didn't have to get radiation, but they still want me to be on this um, on tamoxifen, which is basically just a way to ensure that um, the cancer doesn't come back, right? To to increase my um, life, <laughs> the longevity of my life, mm-hmm. um, so. But when you're on that, you can't, you can't, um, you can't have babies. So I'm waiting to do that first. And then once the little one comes, then I'll go on the pill. You have to be on it for five years. So I'm not waiting until 42 (laughs) to have my first child. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's, there's that. Very nice. Very (laughs) nice. This was great. So tell tell everyone where they can find you because you have such a rich story that we couldn't talk about everything in the episode but there are many things to learn about you and your your entrepreneurship and your artistry and carnival and how you're very involved in that especially pre-covid mm-hmm. so tell people where they can follow you to learn more about all aspects of you got it so i think the most ideal place i'll start with is instagram so my Instagram um, handle is tingsnice, T-I-N-G-Z-N-I-C-E. And then honestly, it's tingsnice at everywhere else. So YouTube, um, Twitter, Facebook, um, but mostly Instagram. And then if you want to kind of just see all the things that I've done prior to, um, I am on YouTube. So I also have a podcast uh, which is uh, currently called Nicest, but it's really just going to be the Tink's Nice podcast in 2021. Um, there are about there there are almost 30 episodes, uh, so you can uh, find Nicest N I C E dash I S H on all your major streaming platforms, um, and you can also go to my website, which is tingsnice.com, 
where you can find my uh, handmade accessories, podcast episodes, a little bit about me. Uh, the website is being worked on now, but you can still go there and find um, some some good stuff. But it will be revamped for January first, nice and nice and refreshed. Nice, nice. That's great. And for those of you listening, I'll have all of that information also in the show notes if you weren't able to write this down for whatever reason. So I am Shamir and I am disrupting balance by continuously overcoming obstacles with style, grace, and lots of positive energy. Thank you for listening to the Disrupting Balance podcast with Hanifa Barnes. Hey, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. And if you're not following me yet, find me at Disrupting Balance on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And guess what? I'm on Clubhouse at Hanifa Barnes ESQ. And if you want free tools or any and all things Disrupting Balance, check out the website www.disruptingbalance.com Talk soon.